Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This is a roundup of the very best bits of my radio show on Talk Radio. This week, it features Terry White talking about her new memoir, a look at what it's like to come from an impoverished and abused background, make it all the way to the biggest job in the big city, and then realize that actually you're not that happy. Plus, Jenny Murray, broadcasting legend, talks weight, weight loss, and whether or not you can be fat and happy. And I meet Laura Mahone, who's sharing her womb story. If you haven't seen the body form ad, Womb Stories, please do go check it out immediately. It's amazing. We talk periods, shame, and just when it is, we're going to get happy with our bodies. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Terry White is the editor-in-chief at Empire Magazine, and she joins us now. Hi, Terry. Hello, Harriet. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. First of all, how would you describe your book? Is it a memoir? Is it... Tell, tell us how you would describe it. Yes, yeah, so it is a memoir, and I suppose mm. it's the story of um, my time in a psychiatric ward in New York, how I ended up there and kind of tracing that right back to my childhood. I, I grew up in northeast Derbyshire um, in a kind of house that was blighted by um, sexual violence and physical violence, and it's really how that led to my mental unravelling decades later. I mean, the thing that's so fascinating about the book is that you said it opens with you in a psychiatric hospital, sort of almost trying to negotiate your way out of it. And it's not, you're not there as somebody who we go, well, this is the tragic story and it's terrible, terrible, terrible. And there's nothing good has happened. You are there as a very successful, you were an editor of a big magazine, you had a huge job in publishing in New York. You'd got yourself from Northeast England to New York City. You were to the outside a huge success what was going on internally for you yeah so it, it was quite a, a I suppose a life of two halves in that sense yeah. because as you say I had this incredible day job I was editor-in-chief of Time Out New York and um, really successful magazine won awards um, I'd worked in British magazine publishing before that but kind of I suppose privately and in in the hours when I was alone I was, I was unraveling mentally quite quickly I was drinking a lot I was self-harming I was taking prescription pills and really I was trying to deal with I suppose the demons that I'd been left with after what had happened in my childhood and I think actually the more successful I got um, outwardly the more the gap between the private me and, and the public me 
widened, I suppose, and I find it harder and harder and harder to cope um, with the issues I was struggling with at the same time. One of the things that perhaps you might have as a stereotype is that children from backgrounds where there is violence, there is sexual abuse, there is alcoholism and sheer poverty as well, that that is not somebody who can then go on to have this massively successful career. Was there a point in your childhood where you remember thinking, I am getting out of here and this is how I'm going to do it? Yeah, and do you know what? It's weird. I can't remember when kind of the idea of going to university um, came into my head because nobody in my family had, had stayed in education past 16. Yeah. But I do remember having at a very young age a sense that if I managed to get an education, managed to get to university went to london which i'd only seen on the telly um then i might be able to escape i suppose and it became a real focus for me to get educated and then once i left university to move to london and get a good job and i think one of the things i think the book hopefully tries to challenge is that thought that children from those kind of backgrounds will always keep the same cycle that their lives will look the same as the lives they're born into um and i think you know it's important to be honest and open about the fact that actually those things do impact you and and they do cause you to struggle um but also they don't have to define you and you can still craft i suppose the life that you want for yourself how did you feel coming from that background to first london then new york to the media industry which is notoriously sort of middle class and quite elitist even when it likes to think that it's not um did you feel like a did you feel like you fit in no never actually and when i definitely when i went into magazines i was very conscious of being working fast and i was really felt massively out of my depth felt like everybody was judging my accent the way i dressed um, and I was kind of quite, I think, hung up on that for a lot of years in that I felt like I didn't fit in. And I think I worked really hard and I, I tried my best to try and fit in and try and, I suppose, leave all of that behind. But I think as I'm older and I've been in the industry longer, it's, it's 20 years this year, I've kind of worked out that, you know, actually that difference is, um, can be beneficial. It, you know, my background made me very driven. It made me a grafter. Um, I think it gave me a lot of edge. Edging, I suppose, in a lot of ways. I I definitely struggled with that and felt like I was an outsider and spent a a lot of years trying to fit in um, with an industry that is is still massively middle class. Terry, I'm just going to flag up a little bit in and out on the sound. So if you're able to, I don't know if your house has got a really good spot or something like that. Um, okay, that's fine. Um, Do you do you think that's changing for the industry now, particularly in light of the recent kind of um, the recent protests around Black Lives Matter about the way that we are highlighting diversity in all its forms that perhaps we haven't done previously. Do you think? I want to say, do you think the industry is going to change? But then I think about it and I think basically how much money you have just to even get a foothold in the in- industry. I I don't know. What do you think? I think I think the industry for the first time is looking at those things properly. So I think it's really. Um, much more conscious of the lack of diversity within publishing. And I think people are having very long overdue conversations. And I think companies are really starting to take it seriously. 
um, for the first time. I think um, change is massively overdue and you've got to hope that we can actually start to fix that quite quickly because I think representation across several areas is not where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just about transforming that kind of will to change it into actual action. Mm, I absolutely. Um, so you are, during your 20s, you've got big jobs, you've moved to New York, and you're really very honest in the book about how much you were drinking and the impact it was having on your life. And I think we tend to think that people, if you are drinking too much, you're not capable of holding down a great job. You're not capable of holding down friendships. Yeah. And yet you were doing all of that. How, I guess for you, do you think the mental, your issues with mental health kind of spurred on the drinking or do you think the drinking contributed to the issues with mental health? Is it a cycle? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a, it's a catch-22, right? Because mm. do you does your mental health worsen because you're drinking or do you drink because your mental health is yeah. worsening? It, it, it's kind of, they're, they're massively intertwined and I don't think you can disconnect them. But I think, you know, I, I was able to be massively high-functioning and when people yeah. talk about high-functioning, you can I could be drinking to the point of blackout at night and then getting up at 6am, getting myself together, being in the office for half eight and putting in a 14-hour day and, and doing really well at my job. And I managed to have those two things both happening together. And part of me wanting to write the book was wanting to be honest about that you can be successful and be seen as a professional success and mm. still be massively struggling with something at the same time that those things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and I think, you know, people with my kind of personality are often those big mm -hmm. stressful pressured jobs where you can be a success and you can try and I suppose get some validation in some way yeah. um so I do I do think that you know in many respects they are actually kind of part of the same issue what happened next how did you what, what was the moment where you said okay this is not working for me I have to change something so you you think that would have been the psychiatric ward, actually. You know, you, you presume that's going to be your rock bottom and that's going to be the sign that things have got to change. But actually, you know, when I got out of the psych ward, all I was really interested in was nobody finding out. I didn't want anyone at work to find out. Yeah. I didn't want to be judged in any way as being unstable or unprofessional. So actually, I just buried it as much as possible. And things carried on being very bad. I was still drinking a lot, still blacking out, probably five, night, five or six nights a week. And so it was clear to me that, you know, something had to change quite big in my life for me to be able to start to deal with it. And I decided to move back to London. I got offered the Gilbert Empire and, you know, it meant coming back to my friends, coming back to my family, um, to a city that I'd lived in for a decade before and, and had always felt at home in. And then it was just practical things, like I had to massively cut back on my drinking. I had to commit to no longer self-harming. I had to no longer take prescription pills. And I had to make some very specific changes to kind of find my way back. But none of it happened overnight. It was quite a long way back for me. And it probably took a couple of years before I was feeling um, much better and was actually just much healthier. How did you go about doing that? Because it's very practical. Like, I need to cut back on my drinking. But yeah. actually, we know because we've all started. We've all had that thought on a Monday where I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And mm. Tuesday happens and it's just downhill again. How did you go about actually implementing that? 
Well, I think, well, I did have therapy and I did do a, a short course of antidepressants um, when I felt like I needed them. And, you know, it, it, in terms of those practical things, it's about making a commitment to yourself. So it doesn't mean, for example, that I wasn't tempted to self-harm again. Yeah. I definitely was. But I just kind of fought that urge and reminded myself of, of why I, did, I no longer wanted to do it. And in terms of my drinking, I think I was just in a much happier place. When I came home, I felt much more supported. I had a much better support system. And I didn't feel the need to escape into kind of the oblivion of alcohol like I had done in New York. And that helped because I didn't feel that compulsion to kind of escape from my daily life, which is why I kind of got to the heavy drinking to it being as extreme as it was when I lived in in New York I mean I think lots of people listening will be sort of I mean maybe almost feeling both identification but also a bit of hope just hearing that because we tend to be very tough on people who drink too much we say if you're drinking too much the only way forward is total sobriety you can never look at a glass of wine again and actually it's it's quite an all-or-nothing approach isn't it yeah, and I found, and I have to say, like, AA, I know people who AA has saved their life and completely yeah. worked for them. But I did go to AA and I was in outpatient rehab for a while, which was kind of a condition of me being released from hospital. Yeah. But it didn't work for me and for that binary thing you're talking about. Um, and I think ultimately it wasn't that I was an alcoholic. My problem was that I wanted to harm myself I wanted to escape and and you know a lot of times I was suicidal and I think they all fed into the same thing which is I drank because I didn't want to be here and I self-harmed because I didn't want to be here and all of those things were basically tools of self-destruction and I knew that the, the moment I no longer wanted to destroy myself I would put all those tools down. Wow that's a really incredibly brave thing to be able to talk about so openly because you're still in this in the same industry you still have the same contacts it's Mm -hmm. still an industry that is not particularly open to conversations around mental health though it is getting better how how did you make the decision actually I'm going to write about all of this and I'm going to be really honest about my life well, I'd kind of been writing these short stories and essays for a while and it became clear, I think, that it was going to be a book. And I think the fear you're talking about, you know, mm. to be able to talk about these things while still a serving editor was definitely real for me. And I went through a phase of thinking, oh, God, I'm going to get fired. You know, who's going to want somebody like me editing their magazine? But I think in both, in terms of the childhood abuse and in terms of the alcohol abuse and, and suicide attempt, I wanted to be really open with the fact that people in in certain jobs and it doesn't really matter what you do how successful you are what your profession is that we all can be touched by these things and it was very important to me to do it while I was still an editor of you know a lot of people wait until um, they've left those certain jobs to be able to speak about it with freedom but I think you know the more that happens the more the stigma remains and that you can be professional and hardworking and a success and also be the victim of abuse and be the survivor of abuse and also be struggling with your mental health. I think all of those things can be true. And until we start to have truly honest conversations about that, that stigma will remain. What would you tell anyone who's listening to this and finds themselves identifying with some of the experiences you've described? 
Well, you know, I think it's really difficult if you have been through anything like like I went through in my childhood. I think, you know, the thing that I always focused on was getting over it. Like people always say, you just need to get over it. You just need to get over it. And I told myself that for years. And to do that, I thought I had to kind of repress it and squash it and refuse to acknowledge that it had anything to do with my life, that it impacted me really. And until I let go of that thinking and thought, you know what, I won't get over it. You don't get over that kind of thing, but I can learn to live with it. And my focus became coming up with a plan that enabled me to live it on a daily basis. And that's a much healthier approach. And I'd say to anybody who's been through something similar, to not be so hard on yourself, not to set yourself, which I think is an impossible task, which is getting over something that traumatic. I think you can just learn daily practical strategies to be able to live with it alongside you. And finally, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your mother, because in the book, obviously, as a child, you have an incredibly damaging relationship with her. And for a point, you couldn't speak to her. Where, how... How is that relationship now? Uh, we we don't have a relationship, and, and we haven't done for some time, um, you know. And I think what I've one of the things I've learned as I've got over is you can't change other people, even people who are your family members, your yeah. parents, your siblings, you know, somebody you're in a relationship with. All you can ever do is change your response to them. And I felt very firmly that I had to take myself out of a situation that I still found to be unhealthy and damaging. Um, and that means we no longer have a relationship, which, you know, is difficult because that's my mother. Um, and that's sometimes, you know, I became a mom myself about, about five months ago. Yeah. And that kind of made me realise what a big thing that is and, and how difficult it can be living without a relationship with your mum. But I think ultimately you have to do, and it goes back to the thing I was saying about your healthy habits and protecting yourself with, is my focus now is on having a happy and healthy life primarily. And that has to come first. I think that's a fantastic and important and beautiful statement. Terry, thank <laughs> you so much for joining us and talking to us. Your book, Coming Undone, was absolutely beautiful. I loved reading it. Thank you for writing it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now let's get back to our guest. First of all, let's talk about your new book, Fat Cow, Fat Chance. Um, great title. What? Uh, why did you decide to write a book about weight? I had spent most of my adult life struggling with my weight. I have to apologise to you, by the way, for my voice tonight. Um, <clears throat> I am suffering the worst attack of hay fever oh, ever. Oh, no, you poor thing. I... It's been a very polony day, so... <laughs> Uh, I apologise for that. <laughs> That's fine. I suffer um, the same, so all sneezing is very forgiven. Oh, dreadful. Um, but as far as the weight problem was concerned, you know, I began to ask myself, Jenny, how come a woman with a very good education and a, quite a lot of intelligence could allow herself to eventually rise to 24 stone? What on earth was going on? I did, it, it really started to go on when I was at university, which is not uncommon, you know, the first mm-hmm. few terms at university and you start to drink, which you've never done before, you start to eat toast because it's easy, you start going to the canteen and you eat a lot of chips. There weren't McDonald's in my day, but I'm sure mm-hmm. students do that now. Um, and I went on a very strict diet then with the help of a doctor at the health centre who gave me what my tutor finally discovered were black bombers, amphetamines, to oh my gosh. just reduce my appetite completely. So I went from 11 stone at that point to just over 7 um, and had to be helped really to start eating normally again, which I did for several years and I had children and all of that. Mm. And then in my 40s, it really started to rise. It, it coincided with Women's are moving to the morning, so mm-hmm. getting up at 5 o'clock, you know, your whole day shifts in yeah. terms of what you eat, when you eat. And we decided to move out of London so that our boys could go to Manchester Grammar School. Both my husband and I are Northern Grammar School mm-hmm. kids. Um, and we moved up to the Peak District, but of course I had to stay in London to work. So I had a basement flat in Camden Town, which I rented, uh, which I call Wuthering Depth. <laughs> and I began to put on weight because I was depressed. You know, I loved my job. I had my friends, but, of course, they were all very busy with their families. Mm. I was just going home at weekends, and I would sit in that flat and eat rubbish. You know, I'd have been to the supermarket, bought stuff that was really easy to cook. I ate for comfort. There's no mm. doubt about it. But the reason... And and then, of course, I did all the diets. I did Atkins, I did cabbage soup, I did Ducan, I did 5-2, I did yeah. everything. And what I found was every time I got my weight down, which I did on these very strict diets, mm-hmm. when I came towards the end of it and was thinking, oh, this is great, you know, I've got, I've got to my target weight. Yeah. And suddenly I was absolutely ravenous. <laughs> and what I began to learn when I discovered... Professor Francesco Rubino, who is what I call a 
metabolic, not bariatric surgeon, mm-hmm. um, he began to explain the science of what happens to me. The way your metabolism, your hormonal system, your genetics, so many things play into this business of weight gain. And he said, you know what happens when people go on a very strict diet? Yes, you lose weight. And then there's a little hormone in your body called leptin, mm. which goes shooting up to the brain saying, whoa, 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 hey, hang on, um, she's starving. Uh, you must make her hungry so that she eats and eats and eats. And that's your body trying to look after you, thinking, oh, my goodness, she's lost so much weight, we've got to do something about this. So that's one thing, you know, that the hormones are really hmm, yeah, trying to work in your favor, but um, quite often not. It's very rare for anybody who goes on that kind of diet to sustain the weight loss. Well, we've talked nine, about this nine, on the show percent. before, which is that sort of, I think they say 95% of diets 95%. fail within five years. Yes, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's because your body is telling you not to do it. Now, some people do do it successfully. Mm. And all the research shows that the people who do do it successfully are the people who become completely obsessed with it and fear food and Mm. never, ever eat anything that might be remotely risky. So they work through all this terrible hunger. Um, And I think most of us just don't have that. Is it willpower? Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but absolute determination. You know, one of the things I was told once when I was... It was a Weight Watchers diet I was on. Oh, I love Weight Watchers, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this woman said, yeah, you can eat spaghetti, but what you have to do is you, you get the strands and, and you hold them up, and uh, if they fit onto a 5P piece, this is before you've cooked it, obviously, it's still <laughs> hard and upstanding. Um, if it fits onto a 5P piece, that's enough. You you can eat that much. Can you imagine how tiny an amount that is? And also... And if, the hilariousness of the random rules we create. But, you know, it's day after day, you're having to think, okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I can eat this, but um, does it fit on yeah. a big piece? Um, have I weighed this piece of cheese? Um, yeah. You know, is this the right number? It's a complete obsession. Mm. And I think very few of us really are capable of doing that. And the other problem, of course, is genetics. Because yeah. what I now understand is that Years and years and years ago, I probably had ancestors who lived in an area where food was extremely scarce. Mm -hmm. There was probably starvation going on. But the people who survived were the ones who, whatever food they got, they managed to retain it. They managed to make fat from it. They were the ones who could keep fat, and they survived. And (laughs) unfortunately... (laughs) I think I'm in that line. I mean, I had two very fat grandmas who never cared at all about the fact that they were fat, but they were. So I clearly had a genetic problem. I had a psychological problem. I was eating because I was depressed. And, you know, we all know comfort food. It's it's delicious. It's all around us. We're absolutely surrounded by food. It's a very easy fix, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you say is so interesting about the genetic piece, because I always joke that, you know, I am the great, great, great granddaughter of people that survived the Irish potato famine because they they could have one potato and last for months. And unfortunately, my body is exactly the same. Why do you think we don't talk about that 
enough that actually we are designed to be different shapes and sizes? We are designed to be different <laughs> shapes and sizes. But, you know, there's this expectation mm. that women must be long and slim <laughs> and look absolutely gorgeous in beautiful clothes. What, what I do, actually, I've, I've got three chihuahuas <clears throat> who are very cross because they're shut out of the bedroom at the moment because I'm talking to you. I told them they had to stay downstairs with my husband, so they're really cross with me. Um, but I walk them in the park, and uh, Butch, who's the only boy, is much bigger than the others. He's kind of the size of a, a chunky Jack Russell. And then there's Frida, who's much smaller than Butch, uh, and then there's Madge, who is absolutely diminutive. Yeah. You know, you've never seen anything so tiny and skinny in your life. I had no idea how small she was going to be. And I get, we go to the park, and people always come up and say, oh, 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 your dogs, oh, they're so gorgeous. What what are they? I said, they're chihuahuas. They're all chihuahuas? Uh, yes, mm, yeah. they are all chihuahuas. Yeah, but that one's so much bigger than that one, and that one's bigger than that one. <laughs> I say... Well, yes, but, you know, I'm the same breed as you are. <laughs> but, you know, it's not very often I say I'm smaller than you. <laughs> very rarely do I say that. Um, but, you know, that's the point. We are all the same breed, for goodness sake, mm. and we are different sizes. And, you know, the, the reason I called this book what I did, mm. which some people say, oh, that's quite a shocking title, Fat Cow, um, is because, you know, so often I have been walking down the street or sitting in my yeah. car and some bloke, it's always a bloke, it's never yeah. come from a woman, I have to say, they said fat cow or something mm -hmm. worse. You know, yeah. I mean, the insults are really yeah. dreadful. Yeah. Um, and I, after I started to learn about the science and I decided I was going to have the metabolic surgery, which is when I lost... 10 stone from my yeah. 24. Um, and I, I began to understand the science and I was invited to a conference. And I sat there in the audience of this conference and a young metabolic surgeon, he was Irish, <clears throat> stood up to give one of the speeches and he said, you know, isn't it interesting that we have legislation that covers hate speech? So if you call somebody out on their gender, their sexuality, mm. their disability, and I need list that all these things that are covered by hate speech. He said, what's missing from that list? And the whole audience went, oh, of course, obesity. Yeah. You know, why is it okay to insult somebody, make them feel terrible, upset them, make them miserable because of their weight? It just is so wrong and so unfair. So that's why I used it in the title. I really wanted people to think, oh, my goodness, yeah. why would she use a term like that? Well, I mean, it is, as you say, it's completely shocking. And I grew up with the same thing. So I've always been overweight. And I grew up with people shouting things at me in the street. And I remember walking down the street when I was in my mid-20s, I think, with two of my fantastically tall, slim girlfriends and a guy leaning out of his car and shouting at us, they're all hot except for you, you fat. Hmm. Yeah, and my girlfriends were horrified. They were like, "What? I, what, how, what? What is this? What is this?" And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> that's just normal." Um, why? Why are we so angry 
at people who are fat? I think it goes right back to as far as the seven deadly sins. Mm. You know, greed was one of them. And I think people live under the misapprehension that anybody who is overweight, fat, they're greedy, they're lazy. They, they, you know, how many times do you, do you hear people say, oh, you know, just eat less and exercise more? <laughs> it's yeah. not that simple. It's really not that simple. You know, during all my dieting periods, I used to go to the gym, I used mm-hmm. to do yoga, I rode horses all my life. I, you know, yeah. I did everything. Always walked my dogs. And yet it didn't make any difference. And it was from, it was Professor Rubino who said, look, you know, some of my patients, I could make them walk around the world on a starvation diet <laughs> and it would not fix their problem. So would you say that actually having... So actually, before I ask that, so you had a form of surgery to lose weight. Can you tell us about that? I did. What happened was mm. I was 64 years old I weighed 24 stone. I had a new GP, uh, and he made me get up on the scales, which my old GP had never done, but she was a bit plump as well. (laughs) Um, And I think we kind of comforted each other. (laughs) I don't have to worry about this. Um, And the GP said, right, you know, you've got to do something about this. Now, he suggested um, a balloon, which is... uh, They can insert a balloon into your stomach, which obviously fills up some of the space so you can't Mm -hmm. eat as much. And then after six months, they take it out. I thought, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense because that's going to be just like all the diets were. As soon as I lose all the weight, then I will start to be ravenously hungry again. Mm. And then I talked to a young surgeon from UCH, University College Hospital, who was doing this kind of surgery on teenagers who were really dangerously obese and I said look you know what what would you do for a slightly more than middle-aged woman (laughs) and he said look come on I'll go through all the different types of surgery with you we'll go and have a cup of coffee we'll talk about it and he explained the different forms of metabolic surgery to me Mm. and he said I would recommend a surgeon called Francesco Rubino he's at King's in South London And he is not only at the forefront of research, he's also a really superb surgeon. And meanwhile, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a documentary producer for Radio 4, telling her about this advice and this man. She said, oh, God, she said, we made a program about that. She said, and and Professor Rubino was in it. She said, he's he's really, really good. He really understands it. She said, and what we worked out is that Because this type of operation takes Mm -hmm. type 2 diabetes away, it just goes. And it was Professor Rubino who discovered this. She said, we worked out how much this all costs. She said, and the operation costs about £10,000. She said, and we figured that within three three years, it has paid for itself on the NHS because... People don't need treatment for type 2 diabetes. They don't need treatment for all the attendant ills that type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. causes. Uh, their hearts perform better. Their blood vessels perform better. 
she said it makes complete sense so I did go along um, after my son finally had really made me do it <laughs> he didn't necessarily want me to have surgery but he did want me to lose weight we'd seen yeah. a really very obese woman in the park we were out walking and she was on a mobility cycle with two little mm. dogs running alongside <laughs> her with their leads attached oh. to her handlebars. Yeah. And Charlie, you know, he was not fat-shaming me in any way. He was mm. just a really concerned son. And he said, Mom, you know, if you don't do something, that before long is going to be you. And that was the prompt. And I went and did it. I had what's known as a gastric sleeve. Mm-hmm. 80% of my stomach was removed. Wow. I know, it sounds like a lot, but do you know? <laughs> I don't think you really need all that stomach, frankly. <laughs> um, what, one of the good things about that type of operation is the part of the stomach that it removes, remo- that is removed, removes something called ghrelins. Now, that's another of these little hormones. It's known as the hunger hormone. And it's the ghrelin that keeps telling you, oh, you're hungry, oh, you're hungry, oh, you're hungry. So you keep on eating and eating and eating. Gone after the surgery. So, you know, for the first few weeks after the surgery, it's a, it, it, I have to tell you, it is not painful at all. Yeah. It's done with little holes in mm-hmm. your stomach, no big scar. You could look at my stomach now and you would barely see anything. The scars are diminutive. Um, the, the stomach... That part of the stomach is removed. For the first couple of weeks, you can only have liquids. Okay. Then you, you know, progress on to pureed food. And then you begin to introduce solid food. And I can now eat whatever I choose, but in very small quantities. So I, can, I get hungry mm-hmm. at mealtimes. I only have my food on a small plate. It's very funny because my husband and my two <laughs> now very grown-up sons have huge plates of food because they don't have the problem, <laughs> do they? Uh, and I have a little plate. If I go out to dinner, I have two starter-sized portions. I mm-hmm. don't really eat puddings anymore. Um, and I love my food again. You know, I can find mm. pleasure in food because I know eating those small amounts will not make me fat. How do you feel now about being, having been being a fat woman? Do you feel like, have you made some peace with it? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever makes peace with being fat. Look, <laughs> you know, I really admire all those women who try the body positivity mm-hmm. movement and try and advance it because I don't want to fat shame anybody mm-hmm. I know exactly what the problems are with mm-hmm. being overweight and why it happens what I worry about is you know I went through periods of saying I don't care you know I can just be fat and happy mm-hmm. this, this is fine I, I'm really not going to worry about this until I began to realize how damaging to my health it was. I had breast cancer when I was 56. I have no doubt my obesity played a part in that. I had to have my hips replaced. That was partly because of chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. but it it was also partly because I'd put so much pressure 
on my hips. Yeah. Um, I know about type 2 diabetes. I didn't have it, but I was diagnosed with glucose resistance, which mm. is the first step towards having type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is a terrible, terrible disease. So when I look at other women who are fat and I want to be positive about it and I want to say, yep, you know, I will back you up. It's entirely up to you, but please be aware of the damage mm. you're doing to your body. How do you feel about things like government rhetoric about obesity? So Boris Johnson, for example, saying we need to wage a war on obesity. How do you feel when you hear things like that? Well, actually, I was really rather encouraged recently. Mm. Now, here's a man who ended up in COVID-19 intensive care, mm -hmm. knowing perfectly well now that his, his obesity, because he was obese, he's still a bit yeah. on the fat side, um, <laughs> that his size had contributed to how ill the virus had made him. Mm. And he says, we really have to, okay. I mean, I don't like all that. I don't like, pe like people saying, oh, she fought war against her cancer and all of that. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't be talking in military terms about these things. But the most interesting thing he said, apart from, yeah, you know, let's not have sweets, by the checkout in the supermarket. Let's mm -hmm. not be advertising junk food to kids in yeah. the early evening. He said, we must look at the question of surgery. And I think he's the first politician mm. I've heard actually acknowledge that there is a treatment for this and that it will save the NHS money and that this country has been doing fewer of these operations than any other country in Europe. And we have to ask ourselves why. And I think the reason why is because politicians have been afraid to say, hmm, do we really want to be seen to be spending NHS money yeah. on these fat, greedy, lazy people? Mm. They, they should just take themselves in hand. We now know that taking yourself in hand is for very few people an option. We know we have an operation that will fix what I would describe as a disease mm. and will in the long run save the NHS money. Now that to me makes absolute economic sense. And people just have to begin to understand. I mean, the part of the reason behind the book is to try and explain in the simplest terms possible what the science of size Mm -hmm. is all about. There is science there, there is psychology there, people have to understand it, and we have to understand that in the last 50 years an enormous amount of research has been done that is developing a cure. Simple. Jenny, it's fascinating talking to you. It's, it's so interesting because you say there is a real a body positivity movement, there is a I would say sort of individualistic it's on you you should fix this movement and then I feel like you're sort of saying you're somewhere in the middle which is it's about actually accepting who we are as people and then seeing what the options are to us within it, that it is you know mm. I have absolutely no doubt that I am now happy at 14 stone which mm. some people would say oh you're still fat <laughs> uh you know I am a lot fatter than I was when I was 
17, 18, when I weighed nine stone, nine and a half stone, typically. Mm. The reason I haven't tried to lose any more since I've had the operation is because I remember years and years ago people saying to me, oh, darling, do be careful. Um, when you get old, <laughs> um, try not to lose too much weight um, because you know, it's either your body or your face. Yeah. And, and, I, rem- and I, I keep saying this about Nigel Lawson, of, of, you know, who I do not want to upset in any way, but he went on a massive diet and lost tons and tons of weight, which was all very admirable. But, oh, my goodness, you know, his face kind of crumbled and he aged 10 years in about a year. And I thought, you know, <laughs> come on, Jenny. Um, I'm 70 now. I was 70 in May. You know, don't lose too much or your face will crumple. There so, is something um, to be said for a bit of fat, <laughs> Jenny. I call it plumptitude. <laughs> it's, it's not fat. It's not overweight. It's just plumptitude. I love that. Jenny Murray, thank you so much for talking to us this evening. It's been a delight learning from you. Uh, amazing Jenny Murray there. Her new book, Fat Cow, Fat Cow, Fat Chance, is out now. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. It wouldn't be an episode of Badass Women's Hour if we didn't talk in some way, shape or form about women's health and particularly periods. Um, We have a brilliant reason to talk about it because Bodyform has released an ad that finally seems to talk about what it is like to actually be a woman menstruating. It's not fun, guys. I mean, I I don't, it feels strange that I have to explain that to you, but it's not. Most of the time it's painful. It's very tiring. Sometimes it makes us angry. And when it doesn't make us angry, everyone assumes that it has made us angry and that we should be treated in some strange way. Um, Thankfully, body form is lifting the lid on some of the stigma around it and asking women to talk about their womb stories. Here to talk about hers with us is Lauren Mahone. Hello, Lauren darling how are you i am very well my love how are you doing i'm not doing too badly actually not doing badly <laughs> at all so tell me when you saw the body form ad did you recognize yourself in it i did i really did i and it was such a nice change um as, as you said before you know we don't really we see one version of a period and what yeah. and it's this normal what people say is normal and actually i think most women you speak to no one has a linear version of menstrual health. Mm-hmm. And and mine, mine for me started when I was like early 20s with endometriosis. It took me five years to get diagnosed. Um, and and when, it was just hellish. It is. I mean, endometriosis, we've talked about on the show before, but for anyone who's new, tell us what it is. So the endometriotic lining of, of uterus, basically, is when the cells that should be inside the uterus grow outside. So it can cover all your organs, um, uh, around the uterus um, and, and it's very, very painful and it can cause lots of other si- symptoms and side effects. So like other than being extremely painful, it can like um, problems going to the toilet, yeah. painful, not able to have sex. Um, and when it's quite severe for most people, it can cause infertility as well. Um, so yeah, it's not a nice thing to go through. And the issue we have is it takes so long to diagnose in women. Like most people, it takes them five to seven years to be diagnosed, which is not a place we should be in. Why have we for so long not talked about women's stories properly? Is it because it's embarrassing? Is it because it's a bit icky? Or is it actually because, and this is my personal theory, that we just don't have the medical knowledge and doctors don't like to be seen to not know about stuff? 
So we just shut I, it down. I, I would tend to agree with you, but I also think it's around shame and women's bodies. And, you know, we're all, we know that women can often feel minimised in terms of their health. And might, when we go to doctors with an issue, you know, we're kind of sent away. Definitely for me, with endometriosis, I because I didn't know what it was and I had an undiagnosed condition for the best part of five years, mm. you know, it was really hard going in and going, I know my body, this isn't right, this isn't normal, yet no one been able to give me an answer or not referring me to the right places. And it, it made me feel like, I was weak. I just couldn't handle my period pains, you know. And it's actually a really most women will suffer with period pains. Mine wasn't period pains. It was endometriosis. It's a, con- it's a condition. Um, but I do think a lot of it comes around shame and 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 stigma around women's bodies and this whole notion of patriarchal society that because it's women's health, it's no one like oh, we must be kept quiet because yeah. um, it doesn't affect everybody. But how it did you did you ever find a cure for the endometriosis? Yeah, so luckily, which is a really weird thing to say is lucky, but um, when I eventually did get referred um, to a, a gynae, um, mm. they did an internal ultrasound and found an endometrioic cyst growing in my ovary. So that meant that they're like, well, if you've got an endometrioic cyst in your ovary, you're likely to have endometriosis in, in, in the womb. So, you know, they... They they did um, a laparoscopy, laparoscopy on me, a keyhole surgery, um, and they laser away wow. all of all of the cells. And I had to have the cyst removed in my ovary. But when they got in, Harriet, because it had been so long, it was so severe that actually um, my bladder was fused to my uterus. <gasps> so all of that pain for oh years and gosh. years, yeah, and like it was all there happening all the time. And it, and you know they if we'd have been able to diagnose it earlier. Mm. Maybe listened to earlier, you know, it wouldn't have been such a severe operation. I would have had to go through such a tough experience. And this wasn't the end of it for you, because as anyone who's heard you on the show before might know, mm. you went then went through breast cancer, and yeah. that's put you into what's called medical menopause. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, owing to my breast cancer being hormonal, um, hormonal in its mm. receptors. Um, one of the preventative measures uh, for, for my cancer treatment that is ongoing is that they shut the hormones down in my body. So for me, that looks like a, a double of drugs. So one of them is called tamoxifen, and it blocks the hormone receptors in your body. Um, and then the other one is Zolodex, and that shuts your ovaries down completely. So I went from having cancer treatment, bang into a medical menopause and ovarian suppression that far surpasses anything that you'd get naturally. Um, it was very, very full on. Um, every single symptom or side effect on steroids (laughs) um, that you get with the menopause. But again, like being in your early 30s and experiencing the menopause and when it's already such a taboo subject is a really hard thing to navigate because one, people don't expect you to be going through these symptoms so so aggressively at my age. Yeah. But two, no one really talks, we know the taboo around menopause, no one likes to talk about it. Mm. Um, You know, when women reach menopause age, they made you feel like the power to pass or you're past it. And and I did, I thought it made me feel that stigma around being in menopause made me feel mm. that I'd lost my womanhood almost mm. in my early thirties. Um, which was, it was a tough thing, especially after cancer, you can imagine, you know? Absolutely. And I think also it's a, it's a strange, we're in a strange place with how women, as women, we talk about our periods, right? Because on the one hand, mm. we've come from this place of shame and, not talking about it or thinking there's something wrong with us or not being able to articulate when there is something wrong with us. And the flip of that is a sort of 
campaigning spirit around it a sort of yeah. you know the kind of reclaiming pride in periods but in doing that we're sort of again then perhaps alienating women for whom uh, whether they are going through menopause because mm. of health or because of age or whether mm. they've just never menstruated it, it, mm. we're sort of tying it in very closely with womanhood I totally agree and like that's something you know even if you look um, into like the trans community and non-binary you know not every single person in this world who identifies as female will bleed and if you don't bleed it doesn't mean that you're not or mm. woman and that's something that I love what the body form um, campaign is doing it's, it's yeah. turning everything on its head on what traditionally we look at is like gendered female um, and what looks normal in women's health and I'm so proud to be a part of it and, and it's been really cathartic to, be able to share my story to be honest mm. especially the endo stuff because I it was a really traumatic time yeah. and and I kind of I put a lid on it and it's revisiting it's helping me to process a lot of the stuff um, and I do I love that it is challenging the norm and what we're what is seen as like normal women's health because I don't think any one person you will ever meet has a linear version do they not at all and I think what's so interesting is actually when we do share those stories so just listening to you share that story about your bladder being fused to your uterus and mm-hmm. I mean I've got a friend who I know suffers from incredible what I assume must be endometriosis but now I'm thinking actually I also know she suffers from cystitis and I wonder if it's linked and I should tell her you know Mm. it's all these things where when we talk about it we then go oh hang on it's not just me it's not just you all of us are going through something here that Mm. we can share these stories and perhaps learn from each other on. And I think it's so important, like, even since sharing my story um, mm. on my endo, because I don't think so many people follow me who never had any idea about that because they're quite yeah. new to finding me. But since then, I've had, like, three or four of my mates, like, say, I think I've got this, asking me questions. And I'm saying to them, girl, go to your GP and demand a referral to a guy me. Like, yeah. owning your health and being empowered to go in and say, I know my body, this isn't okay, I don't want to be sent away again, you know? Yeah. Um, opening these conversations up it just makes it more relatable and also it means that better health for everyone because if we're all a little bit more comfortable going into the doctors being able to own our health say exactly what's going on talk to our family about things talk to our friends about things it makes everything a lot easier and also uh, the other thing that i really loved about the body format and you referenced this is that it does show every side of it so mm. it shows, um, which I thought was one of it shows a woman you know, taking a pregnancy test, two women taking a pregnancy test, and one of them comes back negative, and you see the relief on her face, and mm. the other one comes back positive, and you see the excitement on her face. And it's about understanding that actually, for women, it's not one experience. We're no. not, we are, we are perhaps united in it, but we're not all the same. And traditionally, and, <laughs> you know, body form was originally the leading brand of, woman with her period on roller skates looking happy about it (laughs) (laughs) and I think it shows how far they've come that they're happy to talk about it as it's not that it is difficult and painful and literally bloody it is bloody and you know what I'm like the video if anyone gets a chance to watch it is incredibly impactful and powerful um when I shared it people were messaging me just saying it's brought me to tears like Mm. I've never seen anything like this and it's just such a great move 
um, in the whole cause. I just, I'm so proud to be a part of it and that they've asked me to share my story. Well, thank you so much for sharing it with us, Lauren. We've loved talking to you as ever. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, darling. Take it easy. You too. That's the fabulous Lauren Mahone there talking all about her endo story. And if you haven't checked out the body format, please, please do go and see it. It is so moving and real and exactly how advertising around women's health should be, which is to say honest. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass guests and in-depth chat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.